Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchioni, and with me is Mark Chenoweth. We uh, are both in the office today and neither on vacation, so uh, this will be a regular show. Um, and uh, I want to talk about a proposal that's coming down the pike from the Department of Education under Title IX. It's the 50th anniversary of the passage of Title IX, which um, was <clears throat> to propose was meant to um, provide equality um, in educational opportunities to women um, and has been um, used since then for many, many, many purposes that uh, perhaps were not thought of at the time. But one of these are the sexual harassment and um, sexual um, misconduct rules that are on colleges and um, what prompts me uh, uh, to discuss this is an article in the um, National Law Journal by uh, Colleen Murphy about the proposed changes at the Department of Education. And those of you who listen to us may be familiar, but I'll just give a real thumbnail sketch of what happened. In 2011, the um, administration, uh, Obama administration, did a dear colleague letter basically saying, um, Here's how you should approach Title IX investigations of sexual harassment or, or sexual misconduct. And what that letter uh, prompted or, or encouraged the colleges to do was to strip um, protections from those accused of any type of misconduct of this kind. Um, and it, it was no cross-examination maybe a single investigator rather than a panel, no hearings, so you couldn't hear what, what you were accused of. Um, uh, no, no, um, you know, no lawyer uh, at all, and, and even uh, many times nobody could be with you at all uh, to, to speak on your behalf. So uh, this was very troubling, and it led to an, an enormous amount of litigation. Um, but before much of that litigation could be um, completed, the, the administration changed and, and the Department of Education put out new rules um, that uh, said, hey, look, you, you've got to have a reasonable standard of proof here and you've got to have got to tell the accused what he's accused of or she's accused of, actually, and um, and, and gave other due process um, protections. Some colleges changed, some didn't, but but. There was a series of cases that have now come all over the country um, that said, hey, in, 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 including ours in Venglator, that say, Liz, you, you can't be doing this. This is these are important. Um, these, the rights to an education and your reputation, because obviously, if you're, um, uh, I'll say, found liable rather than convicted, but it feels like convicted to these kids, I can tell you that, uh, and professors and all the rest of it. Um, you know, it has huge life consequences. So we've got to take due process seriously. And now um, the, 
the Department of Education uh, on this 50th anniversary wants to send out another dear colleague or even that, that says, hey, you know, you can have a single investigator and you don't have to have live hearings. And uh, we leave it up to you, of course, but um, we certainly here at the Department of Education don't think that all this cross-examination and other things are important. And then it'll also say, unless the law requires otherwise, because of some of these court cases in certain places. But what they're, what they're trying to do again um, is allow uh, the Title IX um, ad administrative functionaries to go back to this, this sort of almost star chamber approach. And um, this article uh, is really, it, it quotes a number of lawyers warning uh, the administration off of this, warning the Department of Education off of this. And it's a terrible thing, Mark, just the lack of due process we've seen in these cases, um, the, the, the ability to make an accusation and never be questioned on it, the, the inability of the accused to find out exactly what has been said that he did. Um, that's a problem. That's been a problem in, in everywhere uh, where it's been denied, and, and, and even as a truth-seeking matter. Um, it's, a, it's a huge problem, John, and we've seen... We've seen all different varieties of, of problems here. We've seen it where the defendant wasn't even told what the charges were. We've seen it where the defendant was asked to uh, ask which nights he didn't have an alibi for. Oh, we've yes, seen, we've that's seen, right. We've seen that, right? We've we've seen uh, situations where the uh, where the person who, from the Title IX office was helping to write the complaint for the person uh, who was bringing in the charges to change what they were saying in order to bring it into uh, the, the, the jurisdiction of the tribunal or what have you. Uh, we've seen it where the, uh, the, the investigators have not, inve have not talked to any of the defense witnesses, but have only talked to, to prosecution witnesses, if you will. Uh, we have seen it where the... Uh, the, the statute of limitations was ignored or the wrong set of rules were applied. I mean, the, 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 the number of different kinds of due process violations we have seen in the context of on-campus Title IX uh, tribunals is unbelievable. It's just rife with violations of due process, which is one of the reasons why NCLA is focusing on these kinds of cases. You know, and, and because, and the other reason, of course, is because Congress didn't pass a law that says there'll be no due process. This, once again, is an administrative agency taking this position, which is the other reason we take these cases. And, and um, you've heard me on this soapbox before, John, but if, but if someone, if someone uh, commits racial discrimination on campus, there's no on-campus tribunal that takes place. You bring a charge against them if they violated state or federal law in some way that because of their racial discrimination then you have to go prove it in a court. And I don't for the life of me understand why sex discrimination is any different from race discrimination in this regard. I, here's what I've, I have, I, I've been going back to all kinds of reunions at, uh, at my college and things like that. I've been seeing old friends uh, all this month and it brings back to mind, you know, we didn't have right now the um, ideological uh, uh, makeup of these title nine officers on campus that are often hothouses of, um, of sort of ideological animus toward, towards even due process in this type of thing. The, the oh, I thought you were going to say toward men. 
No, I, 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 I think that it's even greater than that. I, I think it's even more than that. It's like if you, if you've been accused, and and sure, I, I think it's it's worse for men. But I think if if you've been accused, there's this victim's view, this view that anybody who says they're a victim is a victim, and no one has to prove anything. I mean, yeah. it's it, and 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 so. And we have represented women in these cases as well. That's, uh, that's who, exactly who have been right. Falsely have, accused. Yeah. That's that's right. We have the Reed case. This is exactly it. And 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 so. What I really, um, but the other thing that's added to this, which comes up since I did just see, is, is the high uh, emotionalism and um, immaturity of, of st students at this age, 18 to 21. We were, uh, I, I had one, one um, woman look at a picture and said, oh my God, we were babies. And I do think that there is um, a, a, an extreme, um, emotional pitch that also gets added to this at this time on a campus amongst, you know, a, a, a very um, selected and often sometimes in the smaller schools, narrow group of people that, that raises the temperature of everything. So it is not like going to court. It is not like it, it, it's, 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 there's no place where you can hide from it and have a considered judgment when there's rumors going around, when there's, um, you know, this person dated this person or had this relationship with this person and they're all and they're, they're all highly emotional, all on a on a, um, you know, an isolated island that's academia. So it's it doesn't even lend itself, uh, even with the protections to the type of thing that you and I know about courts where you have jury, you have you have really independent, indifferent people, indifferent to the outcome and only. Uh, focused on the facts and and the um, the due process, so it, it's it's I, I was thinking about it, and I think it's even more than just a lack of due process. It's the whole setup, as you say, of you're not going to court. You you've got some sort of tribunal of people who are all thinking one way, all want one outcome, and uh, don't really care how they get it. Well, and it's like the special counsel problem, too, because these are designated offices. The only thing they deal with is Title IX. So if there aren't any charges brought on campus, then their jobs are going to go away. So they have every incentive in the world to stir up these kinds of cases, to investigate trifles, to, uh, to, to blow smaller cases up into bigger cases, because doing those things helps justify their existence and allows them uh, to, uh, to, to maintain their uh, their job security. And that's, uh, I'm not saying that's happening in all cases. I'm just saying the, the program lends itself to that incentive structure, which is a really bad incentive structure from a due process perspective for those who have been innocently accused. And there's another aspect to this, this article in the National Journal brings out, which is why go through this? What is the crisis or the real problem? It, it does not seem to me, and I haven't even seen newspaper reports, reports, never mind cases, that there are people who are uh, getting away with this type of behavior on college campuses because they've gotten too much due process. I haven't seen anything like that. I haven't, you know, I, uh, there's, yeah, that's, that there parade is, of horribles has not been trotted out. That is true. And they haven't even alleged it. So why do this? Because it will cause all of these colleges and, and both the colleges will get sued and their resources will be taken away from education. To, to do this sideshow. The administration and the Department of Education will be sued. And that, again, will um, 
will take away their resources from what they're actually supposed to be doing. You know, they're, they're the Department of Education. They're supposed to be educating, not policing the relationships of, of, of various young people on campus. So I hope they rethink it and uh, we'll see what happens. Um, and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here with John Vecchioni, and it's great to be back uh, with you, John, after a couple of weeks where we were each uh, taking turns flying solo here. I wanted to to talk about a, a, an amicus brief that the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, filed this past week. Uh, this was at the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was an amicus brief in support of certiorari, meaning that the court has not granted this case yet, but we're trying to encourage the court to hear uh, this case. And we don't do very many of those, but this is one that caught our attention. And the case is Torcivia v. Suffolk County, New York, and it's uh, on appeal from the U.S. Court of Appeals from the Second Circuit. Our colleague Brian Rosner uh, is the counsel of record uh, on this case, and and Brian's been doing a lot of good uh, amicus brief work for us uh, recently, including in the West Virginia v. EPA case, John, and uh, and he's also the attorney who has been helping uh, or who's been leading the effort on behalf of Dr. Scully, the oral surgeon in, in Rhode Island, uh, who, uh, uh, who had natural immunity and didn't need to, to get the COVID vaccine. But this case involves a, a different topic. It involves the Fourth Amendment. And the particular question that we weighed in on is whether a so-called special needs exception to the Fourth Amendment exists and allows warrantless entry into the home of someone who is not subject to penal control or supervision. In other words, they're not on, on parole or probation or something like that, where there may be a lessened privacy interest uh, than your typical homeowner would have. Uh, and what happened in this case is that a, a man had an argument with his, with his daughter and the authorities uh, came and it, he wasn't brandishing his weapons or anything like that. They were locked away in a safe, uh, but he was, uh, uh, Authorities were called and they they removed him from the premises and they took him to uh, a facility for examination and they kept him there. And the examination uh, revealed uh, at the psychiatric hospital that that he was determined not to be a risk to himself, not to be a risk uh, to others. Uh, But they decided to, to keep him there and they entered his home while he was at the hospital without a warrant. And firearms from a locked safe uh, at his uh, at his home. The district court affirmed the lawfulness of this warrantless home entry and warrantless property seizure as a quote unquote special needs exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. And the Second Circuit Court of Appeals upheld this warrantless entry and warrantless seizure as saying that it met uh, the special needs uh, exception and. Uh, 
but, but what the Supreme Court had recently held, John, is that uh, is that the the so-called police community caretaker activity is not exception to, is not an exception to the constitutional mandate that the executive has to obtain a judicial warrant uh, to enter a home to make a, a seizure, uh, for example, of of weapons. And the Second Circuit distinguished Coniglia, arguing that the special needs warrant exception and the community caretaker warrant exception are different. And it's not so much that I take issue with the fact that they're different, but I think that the principles which uh, which militated the decision in Coniglia are the exact same principles that mean that the Second Circuit uh, got this case wrong. What, what the special needs exception has gone to is... It, or the, the sort of the exceptions that have existed or that the court has upheld have been exceptions where there was obviously consent, right? You don't need a warrant if there's consent or if there's some sort of exigency. So there isn't time uh, to get a warrant is typically what is involved there. Here you have a guy who was held in the hospital for 12 hours. And I don't know uh, the, the facts of this case well enough, John, to know whether did they try to get a warrant and they weren't able to get one or... I, it's not clear to me why they held him for as long as they did. Uh, but in any event, at some point, they made the decision to go to enter the home without a warrant, to seize the weapons again without a warrant. And this search and seizure, both done without a warrant uh, and done while they were maintaining him uh, offsite at this at this hospital. And I just don't see, John, this if, if this kind of thing is okay, if this kind of conduct can occur without a warrant, then it seems to me that they're mostly not going to need warrants. I mean, if any time there's, for example, a domestic dispute and the, you know, where, where guns were not involved, I mean, they were, in, they were locked in the safe at the time of the dispute. If any time there's something like that happens and the person is taken for an evaluation, they're found not to be not the psychiatric evaluation found him not to be at risk of harm to himself or anyone else and yet they're nonetheless able to come and take his guns without a warrant then the fourth amendment has has pretty much lost its meaning in this context hasn't it i i don't yeah, i i think i, I that, don't understand what the second circuit's doing i i think that's the case and you know um there are uh, this guy was in his own house he leaves his own house at the behest of the police to get uh psychically evaluated um, voluntarily i believe i don't think he was arrested i think this was I, a voluntary i, I agree situation. that I, I think that was the case I, I i i read i read the newspaper reports but i think that is the case and so you have a situation where a guy does all the cooperation uh possible and then he comes home and these things are gone and i, I don't know what he had to do to get him back or if he got him back or what happened but the fact is that the the police, if they have a good reason, if, if if they had said this guy's really violent and he was brandishing the weapons, they would have had a warrant issued in two seconds, right? Yeah. If, if there was the if there was the uh, the necessary dangers of gun uh, use, um, that uh, there's no judge that I've ever heard of who, who, if there's a problem, doesn't issue a warrant on probable cause of a violation or or a or some sort of trouble um, that's legally cognizable, but this means, hey, we can take them whenever we want. And and this was these weapons to be to be clear were were legally owned. They were legally stored, and he was licensed to to use them. So he had checked all the boxes, uh, and 
And that's why this is such a disturbing situation. I do see that, in, I'm just cleaning up the facts here a little bit, John. I do see that uh, he was intoxicated at the time and they did ah. handcuff him. So I don't know whether uh, whether he was arrested or not, but he was at least handcuffed, which suggests to me he, he might well have been uh, arrested. And that, so the reason it took so long is that they had to wait uh, for him to sleep off his drunkenness before they could perform the psychiatric evaluation. So I don't know that that accounts for the full 12 hour period, but it certainly accounts for, for some of it, but it, but it gave them enough time that they could have sought a warrant if they wanted to. And so I don't know if they sought one and couldn't get it, or if they didn't bother uh, to seek one, but again, no exigency here uh, in any way uh, that, uh, that I see. And the, just the, sort of the, the suspicion of the officer on the scene isn't enough. The whole point of the warrant requirement is that you get a third party independent judicial evaluation of the reasonableness of the, of the search and, and proposed seizure. And if the executive branch gets to do these things on their own without the involvement of the, uh, uh, you know, of the judiciary, then the Fourth Amendment is not being, is not being honored. And you've really taken what I think is supposed to be a very small exception, and you've driven a Mack truck through it. Uh, you know, I, I get the fact that there could be an exigency where, uh, I mean, imagine a situation where the guy is, you know, like maybe there's been a screaming argument or something, but he hasn't hit anybody. He hasn't brandished a weapon. He hasn't, he hasn't violated any, you know, any rights uh, of any kind. Uh, but he's talking crazy talk when the police get there or something like that. I mean, you can imagine... Right. Situations that are different than than this, where there might be an exigency or maybe he maybe he uh, he bolts for the bedroom like he's going to seize the weapons or something like that. And he may say later, oh, that's not what I was doing. I was you know, I was going to or, or he's threatening harm to others. That's the easy one. Yeah, that is that is the easy one. Right. For sure. Uh, but but none of those things were happening uh, here. He wasn't immediately uh, dangerous. Uh, and uh, the fact that that in this situation, both the district court and the Second Circuit uh, decide, post Coniglia decided that this was was different and that, you know, that this was the kind of warrantless entry and seizure that should be uh, upheld uh, is disturbing to me. So it, as I say, NCLA has encouraged uh, the Supreme Court uh, to hear this case. And you know, we are you know, we're more often involved in these Fourth Amendment issues when there's an administrative agency involved as opposed to the, the police force. This isn't typically the kind of case that we would jump into. But here, John, I think we just felt like the the fact pattern was so egregious. The the the, 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 the it was so clear that the special needs exception shouldn't apply to this situation that we're hoping by by jumping in to maybe grab the court's attention and uh, and recognize that their decision in Coniglia is already uh, being uh, undermined by the courts of appeals. Yeah, that's that's right. And I always wonder why you see this time. You know, we see it in Chevron when the district court don't don't take the admonition not to go to Chevron so fast, and and then you see the appellate courts also sometimes don't um, don't listen. And and I, I always wonder about that. I, I, why are they doing that? What what possibly compels them uh, to, to come out this way? It is, it is a puzzle to me. I you know I I think that they need to go back and, and read the Fourth Amendment maybe right. I mean the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated 
and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be se- persons or things to be seized. That's not that difficult to read. I think that it's pretty clear that the that the police are able to understand what that means. And it's a shame that the judges weren't uh, weren't quicker to uphold the, the rights of the individual in this situation. Now, uh, we know that in New York in particular, that there's been a, uh, a different attitude toward uh, guns. And I suspect that if this if the search and seizure involves something other than guns, I suspect the judges might have taken a different attitude to what happened here. Uh, but I think that that some of the animus against uh, against law-abiding gun owners is maybe shining through here. Uh, we'll see if it gets the Supreme Court's attention. We'll, we'll keep you up to speed. And certainly if the court grants cert, we'll let you know. Uh, again, the case is for Cynthia, the Suffolk County. And we'll be back with more right after this on Administrative Static.